Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, everyone. We are very excited today to be talking to Dr. Alan Schnee, who is a PhD, BCBAD consultant, author, speaker, and lots more. So welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. You guys are doing great work. Well, thank you. Um, We'd love for you to start by introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about, um, you know, your experience in the field, how you got here, a little bit more about that. Uh, Do you have 30 years? I I mean, (laughs) the abridged version, maybe. (laughs) I, I, I started doing this way back before anyone was doing this back in the early 90s. Uh, there was a there was sort of there were whispers about the benefits of doing this. I was up in the Boston area uh, and um, I trained as a psychologist, hoping and planning to do pediatric psychology. Um, and then a colleague and friend of mine had a son who was on the spectrum and brought in some consultants. Uh, from down this way in New Jersey. And she, uh, she, she was astounded at his progress. And I had worked with children on the spectrum when I was in graduate school and, 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 and didn't expect that children could learn until she invited me to come up to see what he was doing. And I, my jaw dropped. And she, both she and I stopped what we were doing in psychology and then started to learn how to do this stuff. So that was a long time ago. And ABA really won you over. <laughs> the, the, the benefits of using it properly won me over. Yeah. I mean, someone says, you know, always access your reinforcers. And, you know, as a professional, my reinforcers are seeing that progress, right? Yeah. And when you see something, and even if you're not in the field, that's what's that famous saying? Like, if you, you know, aren't, if a child's not learning the way you're teaching, change the way you teach. Yes. Right, right, right. And and that's that's what uh, I learned. I learned to ch- adjust what I was doing so the child could learn. And these tools and these principles, when applied well, uh, make significant differences in the lives of children and their families. So I know today you wanted to talk about a little more of a specific topic within the yes. field of ABA and programming. Um, and it's all about matching. 
So tell us about that. Ma- matching. Who, who talks about matching? It's, it's, <laughs> it's so mundane and boring, you know? It's like you, everybody who's been involved in early intensive behavioral intervention at some point has taught a child to match. And then they match. They're done. Okay, on to the next thing. Okay. So why matching? Uh, well, for several reasons. Just at a conceptual level, I think it's important to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about matching. And really what we're talking about is the ability to make a comparison, to see how things line up. Are these the same? Are they alike? And to recognize those differences visually, right? So what's involved in it? We have to shift our attention from the thing in our hand or the thing that's presented, and we have to scan and make the, make the comparison and make the match. So we have to hold things in mind. So we're looking at scanning. We're looking at shifting attention. We're looking at short-term memory. Fine. Kids can do it. Now what? So we have this ability. The, the thing that I love about it is it can be used as a vehicle to teach many other things. So it's not something to put on the shelf. It's, it can be used as a tool skill a skill to build other skills. And what I want to do is give a a number of examples of how we can use matching to teach other things. So those things that would include executive function. So we're working on having children hold things in mind for longer periods of time to be able to complete tasks. And even in the presence of distraction, to be able to, to, to sort of get to their goal, to meet their target. So executive function. We can also use matching to increase social awareness so that we can teach children that, that, that the, those in their world uh, are, are of greater relevance. So when we do traditional matching, we can give the children the card and they don't have to pay attention to us, really. They just look at it. They put it down. They don't really, we're insignificant. And the only thing that's important here is the card and to the thing and the thing I need to match it to. But we can use it to increase social relevance. Are our relevance and social awareness and even social acuity. So how do we do that? How do we leverage matching to improve and increase those abilities in youngsters? There are a number of programs, we'll call them programs, that we can employ. Um, and, because, and, and you mentioned that uh, I've done some writing and I've authored this terrific uh manual with a guy named Steinwind, uh, and it's right behind me, Early Intervention for Children with ASD. We have it too. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and many of these exercises that I'm going to talk about, you'll find in there. They're also in another iteration. They're in ebooks, and they're called little, they call them little mini, ABA mini ebooks. And you can find one just on matching. So if you're interested in matching and how these, how to use these exercises and try them out, you can just buy this tiny little book on, on Amazon to, to, to and you try these things out. So let me give you a few examples, okay? So now imagine we want children to hold things in mind for longer periods of time. And we want to increase their visual memory. And we want to increase their... Um, Social awareness. I'm just going to pull this out and give you an example. Imagine there's a picture on here. Yes? Or I'm holding a picture. And I say to the youngster, 
find this. Now, to, we can bury that in a book, in this manual, I'm sorry, in this binder. So they have to go through the binder to look for the thing. So what is that working on? It's really working on their ability to hold that thing in mind for longer periods of time, right? So we're working on memory. We can use uh, matching to increase memory abilities. And now you can bury it, put more and more pictures in here. So they have to now scan across the pages. So that increases their scanning ability and increases their memory. So we can work on memory using matching. We need this memory because we want to eventually work on executive function, right? So this is a good place to start. Well, as you explain that, I was going to say, as you explain that program, I'm fast forwarding to my daughter's grade six reading comprehension. And what does she have to do but read an entire few pages and then answer questions? And if she doesn't know the answer to the question, she can go back, match, right? What do the questions Precisely. Back to the test. I mean, that's way in the future. But, but it's, it's, I'm glad you bring that up because what happens if children forget? And this is on the front and they're... They're looking through here. What do we want them to learn to do? Reference. Problem solve. Go mm-hmm. back to the front. What was that thing that I was looking for? Just like your daughter does. Mm-hmm. So we're putting this in place very early. Some early problem solving, building memory skills, scanning abilities, all within matching, using matching and using a little book like this. And one of the things I loved, I think, in, in your book was how you're using a skill like matching where a lot of us think of it as like, you know, an early learner skill and it's so boring and mundane and we have flashcards. And I think one of your applications of the matching or correct me if I'm wrong was giving them almost like a shopping list and they were given a list and they had to like go around the environment and find those things that were on the list. That's right. That's a very early application of an important life skill that you wouldn't, you know, it's such a great application of the table work of matching into a way that's like, you know, apply to real life and starting even at that early, early beginner learner to apply some of those skills to something that's more relevant. So I really right. love so that. that. That's a more functional uh, uh, um, uh, application. Even before that, for many of the children that we work with, we have to work at this level. So in- when would you introduce something like that for a learner, like what you're showing us with the binder? Uh, so we would we would start to do this soon after they demonstrate the ability to match. So, but what we would first do as we're once we teach what once we see that they can match, we we would increase the field size. So if they're matching to within a field of four, we would increase the field size on the on the table, and then we would probably also then distribute those items that they have to find across the room. So first on the floor, then at different levels in the room, and in different places in the room. So we may say to them hold it up and say, find this. So it's a visual memory task, but they have to stay in task for longer periods of time as they travel around the room, remembering, having having to keep in mind so that they remember what it is that they have to find. And again, there's a social aspect of this that can be built in because when they forget, what do they have to do? They have to come back or at least turn to us. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we know what that means. It means I need help. But if there's is a youngster who's language able, then we can we can what language would hang on that? Show me again. I forgot. So we can build this 
We can use this also to, to enhance and develop language abilities because under those circumstances, what would other children say? They'd say, I forgot, show me again. What was it, right? So we can build in all kinds of, um, of, of, of dimensions, social dimensions, memory dimensions, uh, scanning, scanning abilities, linguistic dimensions, did I say that? Just using matching. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to a visual schedule. Like, as you said, you know, they're referencing something and they've got to find it around the room. So often we try and, you know, teach a program like IAS, independent activity schedule, but we teach it in such a rote way that they have to rip off something and match it to a bin and go get that bin. And meanwhile, if we just taught them the skill of matching in an expanded naturalistic way, you wouldn't need to teach any of that because they would just generalize it. That's a pivotal skill. You would hope. And if it, and again, if, if, Most if, of the time. if they don't have the capacities to do those things, you can, the matching still sort of is, is a standby and still use it to get them to at least stay on task. And some kids really rely on those visual reminders constantly to go retrieve their bin, bring it back, do the work, turn the page and go get another bin. That's fine, but you're right. Once those things are in place, you want to see what you can do to leverage those abilities so that it can be used in more natural ways. Um, so that's some of, some, of, some of what we can do with matching, just using a binder, using matching where we can hold something up, ask a youngster to find it, so then they go to search the room and keep things in mind for longer periods of time. Um, we can we can we can we can do the same thing with a binder where we place the binder farther away. So we're standing with the child, the binders at the other end of the room or even in another room. So they have to travel to find the binder to find the thing in the binder. So there, you, there, there are many iterations and variations on this. You just have to be creative in the way you can you know, think about using this. These are just some ideas. So I, I don't know about you, but we find that sometimes a lot of people in the field um, you know, we'll kind of get stuck on the non-creative applications of ABA and, you know, mastering through targets and not really knowing either from a lack of training or lack of creativity and how to incorporate all of these, you know, amazing executive functioning skills into what we're doing. Sometimes we just think, well, I have to get them through these labels or I have to master this many targets. And so a field of three is enough. Let's just get them through this program so I can move on to the next program. And right. I think what you're saying is like you're leaving a lot of skills on the table here. Like you have to really think outside the box and think creatively. So how do we, you know, as BCBAs kind of learn to incorporate some of those creative thinking into our programs? That's a good question. Um you know, certainly that comes with experience. The more you do it, uh, you're going to find creative uses for the things that you've just you've learned and or it's a process of discovery very often. Uh, but the way I learned it was by sitting with people who knew more than I did and who had better ideas than I did and who showed me, look, have you considered X, Y or Z? And once they were able to uh, uh, reveal these kinds of ways of thinking and doing things, then it opened up other ways that I could, that I might imagine, or if they, you you have to be attentive to what's going on on a moment-to-moment -moment basis very often with our youngsters to see if there are things that are occurring that 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 you can you can exploit as a teaching opportunity. And I don't think that's 
new for anyone, meaning in, in saying that, we, we want to identify those opportunities and exploit them as best we can with the capacities of the children in mind at the moment, at, at that time as well. So how do you teach someone to do that? I think just by watching how other people work, uh, getting enough experience and paying careful attention, I think. You have thoughts on that? I think you're right. You know, surrounding yourselves with people who know more is really yeah. important. I think that's hard for a lot of people with like the amount of, you know, certificates coming into the field, not having those opportunities, but then creating those opportunities for yourself. And I think something that we talk about a lot is not being stuck to those assessments. Like I think sometimes people get really like granular about the things that are on an assessment and really detailed about, well, it says a hundred labels. So I'm going to like just ramp through a hundred receptive labels, yeah. not looking at the child. And I think being more child focused, like you said, look at those teaching opportunities. Like what is this child doing right now that you can capitalize on? Um, and thinking about those opportunities versus like, you know, F16 or H11 on the assessment. Yeah, I, 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 you're absolutely right. But I think there's something else that that, that uh, is, is at play here. And that very often the people coming into the field don't know why they're teaching what they're teaching. Mm -hmm. They don't know what the purpose of this thing is, mm -hmm. except to meet some goal and check it off because it says I have to do this. Right. So why do we teach? Here, here's a perfect example. Why teach matching? Just what, to, not just to check it off. Just to check off the box. What is this thing that I that that I'm what is matching? Well, it's where we make these comparisons, isn't it? We can ask the same question about yes and no. What is it? Why do we teach yes and no and under what circumstances? Why do we teach it? What is it? Let me ask that question. What is it? Well, it's where we're looking for agreement or disagreement between things. So is this a car? Is there agreement between what I said and the fact? There's, I'm holding, the fact is I'm holding a, a, a baseball. And someone says, is it a car? Is there agreement or disagreement? Well, no, there's no disagreement. Oh, it's no. Did you wash your hands? Does it agree with the facts? So that's what we're asking when we're asking yes, no questions. Even when it comes to desire, does this line up with what you want? Yes or no? Does it line? So, so you have to understand what it is. What is this thing that I'm doing when I'm teaching matching? What am I doing? And what are the constituent abilities? You have to understand what those things are as well. So if we're looking at matching, what are, the, what are the constituents here? Scanning, shifting, attention, and memory, right? So if you understand what those are, then if you, A, then you can start to think about how I can use and strengthen those abilities. And, or if I don't get matching, how can I strengthen shifting attention? How can I strengthen scanning? How can I strengthen memory so that we can get what we call comparisons, making comparisons, looking for sameness and difference. Have you ever had a student who, or a suggestion for a student who has a really hard time matching? Yes. So, so what do we work on? This is controversial. Oh. Well, maybe not. I'll, okay. I'll leave the controversy out. I have to see where their eyes go. I have to see if their eyes actually look at 
the thing in their hand or that thing that I'm holding. And if their eyes, if there's a shift of attention and if they're scanning across the sample, the array, if they're not, then I'm not going to get the matching. So then how do I do that? Well, I have to, I have to, to be a very careful observer of their behavior. How do I get them to look? And then how do I get them to shift their attention? And how do I make sure that they're checking against each of those items on the table? Uh, so, so that's what I want to see happen. There are a variety of strategies that you can employ that I've employed over time to, 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 to increase the likelihood that, that I'll get that shift of attention in that scan. One thing we can do is, you've probably seen it yourselves, we'll do a target and a target. We'll put the, the target on a paper plate. So it stands out from the background. Now we have a target and a target. That's one thing I like to do. If I want kids, so, but it, so, some kids don't necessarily go down. So what I'll do is I'll bring the items up. So I'll put the matching items, say, on a, on a whiteboard. So I'll have them look at the item and then look to the whiteboard to see if I can get them to shift up. Those are just things I try. They help with most of the kids. I mean, I think in and of itself, just that skill of turning your head, whether or not, like, that's that's a great thing to learn. If we could focus on getting our learners to switch their focus from one thing to the next, that would be a great skill. That's, if you don't have that shift of attention, you won't get the matching. So the question is, what do we have to do? How do we arrange the environment to increase the likelihood that they will shift? So I like using the target and target. I like bringing the target, the, the, the array up. I don't know why it works. Sometimes it, and often it does. Sometimes rather than hand them the item, because if you hand them the item, they don't look at it. So I'll point to it or I'll hold it. And then, of course, you have the, 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 the certain level of uh, guidance, uh, prompting that's going to take place there. But the prompting is pointless unless you see there's that shift, the shift of attention. It's, it, it requires a level of specificity and meticulous kind of uh, uh, prompting and, and, and um, uh, guidance. I don't know what the that in order to get that in place. So yes, I have seen it. It's a painstaking process. I like what you said, though, about being super aware of your learner. And yeah. that's one thing that I find that many people don't do because they're just, I have to get in my X number of trials. I have to take data. I have to do this. I have to do that. And my supervisor's watching and I have to do this and, 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 and it's a lot. Um, but if you can throw, we often are advocates of throw your pencil down, throw your pen down, throw the iPad down, throw whatever down. Am I dare to say, don't take data right now and just teach? And sometimes you need to do that. And if you can be really hyper aware of where your students focus is, that's massive. Because like you said, you know, I had a learner one time who couldn't match, couldn't receptively identify none of that. However, as soon as I held it up for her, she was able to do that. I had another learner where that didn't work, but I observed that he he likes putting things in things. So we had him actually take the item and drop it into the appropriate container. And 
just that that matching and we actually had him match with those plastic ikea cups and we don't i don't normally start by matching color but i had to with him and I, he got it because that's what he liked to do but i was super attentive to the learner yeah you're, you're right if, if if you're not paying attention to the child uh you're going to miss all the information that you're giving they're giving you both to to increase the likelihood that they're going to get something and also what you need to do in order to so that they get something. What do I need to change here so that they're going to get what it is that I'm trying to get across? Yeah. That's hard to do. And it requires that level of acute attention. Um, and we have all that, um, all those principles. Like sometimes we just rely on reinforcement and prompting, but we have stimulus prompting and response prompting and shaping and all of these principles that I think if we could really, you know, focus on the needs of the learner, then we could use our tools as behavior analysts that much better. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned the that matching could be a tool for that social awareness. Could you give us right. an example of that? Sure, sure. So so now I have this 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 picture behind me, yes. In in the in in the manual, there's a program called selection based imitation. Now, we usually start this on the table. So I don't have a, a sample to show you, but imagine there, there's an array of math, there are two arrays. They're matching items. Yes? So ball, ball, cup, cup, car, car. Uh, now, rather, so the child, in order to be able to properly uh, match, they have to pay attention to what you're doing. And what am I doing? I'm pointing to the thing they have to find. Find this. So now they have to pay attention to me in order to be able to do the match. Find this. Then they have to shift their attention again and scan down to the to the array that's closer to them. Then we can change the the, the arrangements here so that there's not that kind of one-to-one -one that the direct correspondence where the things are lining up, so that they actually then have to um, do some better scanning. We can move this to a wall. So imagine now up here, I you don't have to imagine because it's up here. I have pictures here, yes? And on the youngster's desk are sets of corresponding pictures. Now I'm standing up and I'm moving. So now they have to track me. Okay, everybody, find this for me, right? And it's on their table. Now, what if I have another array over there? I move across the room. They have to track my movement. They have to follow me. Now, find this, guys. I'm over there now. So they have to follow. They have to track me. Basically um, describing a classroom scale. Sitting at your desk, precisely. following the teacher. Reading that, that's, that's precisely right. It gets them ready for the classroom. Pay attention to what other people are doing here, guys. Uh, and this is one way that we can do that by using simple selection-based imitation and moving it to arrays on walls. And when I had the center, we had all the walls covered with stuff. And then it would not only be, you know, find this, but it might be give this to so-and-so. Then they have to go and look for somebody. Um, and then we can extend that in a variety of different ways so that then they can't find someone and they have to problem solve. They have to ask someone for where, have you seen Sally? Oh, yeah, she's in the office. What color is it? You can, you know, you can do this a variety of ways and just use it and mix it up in all those kinds of ways. And 
which which leads me to this. Well, it's also uh, uh, we talked about it as TPSM, uh, which is another uh, uh, example uh, or, or exercise in in the the matching. TPSM is in matching, I think. Or we use interrupted chains. So the child is asked to find the map. So they'll have 3D objects in a container. Imagine the container. There's a horse. Then there are corresponding pictures on the table. They turn it over and they match. Turn it over, they match. And they have, okay, then it's missing. There's no match. What do you do? Well, I mean, I think it's great because you're building in problem-solving skills, but like you mentioned earlier, it's that linguistic piece of it as well, right? Because you can say to somebody, where is it? You Precisely. Know, it's missing. Precisely. And that's that's exactly the step here. So it's missing. Oh, I don't have it. Now, here's another way that we can build in more of the, 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 the social piece. We work on joint attention. It's over there. Mm. Yeah, it's in one. the office. So we work on executive function. They have to travel. Of course, they've learned where the to locate the office. It's mm -hmm. under Johnny's desk. We work on prepositions, right? So, so using simple simple interrupted chains, we can we can build in problem solving, scanning, all the social dimensions and the like, just by using interrupted chains which is very common when we're teaching children to request things, right? But here we're asking, we're working on question asking, where is it? Or so there are other things you can say, I need this, but, but then you can expand it. Oh, it's over there, it's in the other room, mommy has it. And you can, here you can build in yes, no. Oh, you want this? And they need the cup, but you give them banana. No, I need the banana. Yeah. So it's something that we teach a lot, which is kind of what you're describing is also that teaching across operands that sometimes we get kind of pigeonholed into, well, I'm teaching only matching trials right now. And then Precisely. next hour I'm teaching only receptive trials. And I think part of that creativity that we can teach others to use is think about everything across operands. So if you're doing a matching trial, how can you incorporate mandate? Or if you're doing a receptive trial, incorporate tacting and intraverbals and requesting and all of that. Right. Or and, and I, I just think in terms of, um, not, just to speak English, uh, different language forms and uh, which is to uh, to to make requests or or different 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 um, uh, uh, categories of language, which would be prepositional use or pronoun use or names of things, go to the kitchen and get it, or making requests across distance or walk. I, I think in terms of executive, building executive function, I, using names and building in prepositions and building in pronouns. And so just to speak English, because if I'm talking about across operant classes, then I get lost. Very true. <laughs> are there any prerequisite skills to matching or is it something you could start like as soon as possible that's a really that's a really important question um 
this is where the controversies. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise this this question. I don't know how you, where you guys fall on this or hold. Um, look, if I don't have a youngster's attention when I'm starting to teach, the likelihood of success in teaching other things, uh, children learn through us. That's they just do. And if they're not paying attention to us, it's going to be very difficult for us to point things out to them, to let them know what where our attention is, so that this is where this 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 is where I want your attention to be right now. So pay attention to me now, and then I'm going to direct you to what we need to be doing. So one of the first things I do as a prerequisite to any teaching is I get them to pay attention to me. So how do I do that? Now we have a shared history, Shana. Yeah. So you know how that works. We both have we both had similar mentors. So yes. Um, um, so one of the first things we learn is how to get youngsters to orient to us. And what I learned as a, as a as a as a teacher um, is how to get a youngster to pay attention to me. And and that goes in, falls into this whole category of whether or not we want to teach children to meet our gaze. People eye contact, the whole eye contact controversy. Mm -hmm. But I see eye, eye gaze as a, as, a, as a teaching technique. And we're not asking youngsters to hold our gaze for 20 seconds and then 30 seconds. Just meet my gaze for a moment and get into the habit of meeting my gaze and catching my, meeting my gaze when you need something. So when you check back, the way I know, it's a, it's a social convention. It's techniques we use in our communicative practices to check back with others, to check in with others, to get feedback from others. We're usually checking in and we're, we're meeting each other's gaze. So the, one of the first things I do is I, I start to shape up that, that habit of getting youngsters to pay attention to me. Once I have that in place, it's easier for me to then teach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you really need to teach joint attention. I shape up more the attending skills, though. Like, so it's, you know, attending to my body, attending to my movements. You know, they don't necessarily need to be looking me in the eye or holding my gaze for 20 seconds, like you said. Well, but and, definitely and, looking at somewhere so that they can start copying me, right? Right. And, and that's you, where you, you certainly need that for imitative behavior. I'll tell you another reason why I like them to meet my gaze is because there's a lot of information here. And if you look at the developmental literature, what we what we learn is that when children are looking at people, they're only they're they're catching others' gaze on, only momentarily. They're actually scanning faces. So if a youngster is coming up to meet my gaze and they're looking at my face, they're going to get a lot of information. They're going to look at my delight. They're going to look at my 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 puzzlement. They're going to see other things that that I'm I'm expressing with my face, which I think is important in 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 this this communicative practice that we engage in. So that's how I view. Yeah, I absolutely I love the early start Denver model. It's more recent than when you and I were trained, but what's really awesome about it is that it says, you know, get down to a youngster's level, you know, get in their face, you know, be very expressive and, you know, really model that excitement, that enthusiasm model with your face, et cetera. I, and then it's about following gaze, following point, all of that type of thing. It's amazing. I, I love it when a child I can, uh, comes up and, and meets my gaze. I, I'm so happy yeah. and I want them to see that. 
And, and it's not only that you're going to see my smile, I'm going to throw them up in the air. I'm going to, I'm going to let them know that this is, this is, this is great fun when we're connecting this way. Very true. Um, so that's where I start very often. <laughs> Um, okay, so something that we like to ask all of our guests is we have a large audience of newly minted BCBAs, people who are just coming into the field. And like you said, there's fewer and fewer of the experienced BCBA. What would you, what is some advice you would give to a newly minted BCBA? Find one of you guys. You two, one of you two. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's sort of, I'm sort of out of the loop these days, truthfully. Uh, you know, in, in the old days, I could say, because uh, the the heart of this stuff was some of the best programs 30 years ago, and still are, I think, in my opinion, were in New Jersey. So I'd say, if you really want to learn how to do this, go to X, Y, or Z school and learn with so-and-so. Well, a lot of those people are retired now. Mm -hmm. um, but the, their legacy is still sort of felt in those institutions. So I don't know where uh, else outside of New Jersey people can go. Uh, I know where to go. I know where to tell them to go in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, it's a good question. I don't know what the answer. What are you telling people? Um, I think just be open to learning always. But kind of like you said, like finding those mentors. Don't think that just because you passed the exam like you know you don't need to have all the answers you definitely no. don't have all the answers and finding those people and places that could be supportive of you continuing to learn yeah yeah you know yeah i think that's the best advice i i i used to i in order to learn i used to travel across states mm -hmm. just so i could sit with my mentor uh because uh wow. They were in New Jersey. I was in Boston in those days, and I would travel down. And even when I was then practicing, this was before there were there was the certificate. I would, uh, I would, I would go down for supervision, or I would invite the families to go with me to go see this person. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I had no idea, and I have to tell you. Um, up until, I don't know how long ago, when I had my center, which was from 2005 to 2015, I had a colleague of mine come in, um, Seinwund, I, I, because he was my teacher. And he would come in and he would teach me and he would continue to teach my staff. So I was already an old man, but I, I still needed a mentor. Very true. So find, find, you know, in, in, in Judaism, they say, find a rabbi. Right. Here we're saying, find, find a mentor, find a rabbi and don't let him go uh, until you found, you, you, you're sure that you, you've just wrung everything out of them that you can. And then go find somebody else because there's always more to learn. And there's so much, there's so much wisdom out there from people like you or people who are really like the OGs in the field. And I would love to what, be able to <laughs> original gangster. Original gangster. <laughs> See how old I am? For the OG. <laughs> 
Um, no, but the people like you who happen in the field have such a, a, a unique value that I, I would love more of us to have access to. Um, I mean, this is why we do this and have people come on and share their wisdom. But I think that that's so valuable to, to offer to people. So thank you. I am so delighted I met you guys because you say such nice things about me. But more, but more, but more Now you learn with no GS. See, but, you're always learning. But more seriously, that you're 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 sharing these kinds of things, this this kind of wisdom that uh, people people you you need to impart these things. People need to hear these things uh, because I think there are a lot of young people out there who who are are tasked with something that's incredibly complicated. Things that, that they're asked to be responsible for things that are very hard to understand how to do and how to help these youngsters. Uh, and they're and, and because they have their certificate, the world views them as experts. And they know that they're not expert enough. I see online they're struggling. They're always asking questions. Do you know where I can find this? Do you know what to do here? And they're they're thrown into this, and it's so hard. It's still so hard for me. It's a big responsibility. It's a huge, huge responsibility. Okay, you mentioned um, the. Is it Steinland that you said that yes. you guys wrote a book? So tell us about the book that you wrote, um, and you know how how someone could use it potentially. Um, the the book that you're holding uh, contains you know lots of. Uh, Exercises across those standard domains, matching, imitation, uh, across linguistic domains, uh, early receptive language, expressive language, prepositions, pronouns, and the like. And there are a variety of manuals out there that will touch on those things. I, I think what's unique about this piece is, is that it, it works to link or relate things with across these domains. So like you were saying, it just doesn't exist in isolation. Yes and no doesn't exist in, in isolation. It doesn't, you just, it's not a one and done. It, 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 in order to learn to use it, you have to learn how to apply it across different circumstances. And this book starts to lay that out in just the one example I gave you with the interrupted chains. Is this what you want? After you've taught it up in very contrived, in very contrived ways, now start to introduce it in slightly more contrived ways, but still not under the conditions it was originally taught. And I think um, so. And even under that, you can you can see how you can leverage those things that had been learned in very rudimentary ways. So here, do you want this one and it's red? No, I want the yellow one. So you can start to sort of integrate these things and make sure that they're used across these kinds of these exercises so that they relate. Because anything that we do in language is not used only under these very contrived specific circumstances. So I think our book does a very nice job in, in illustrating how you can do that and illuminating these kinds of relationships. So for those who aren't watching, the book is called Early Intervention for Children with ASD Considerations. Um, we actually were just talking with our community manager who's part of How to Be Her name's Kat. We said we we're going to be meeting with you. She said, wow, I actually just bought that book for all of my BCBAs because wow. the value of like 
you know, knowing how to not just teach in isolation. And one of the things that, that is great about them is um, I think you call them extensions and considerations yes. each of the topic. Yes. It's not just about teaching this one skill, but it's now how do you apply it or how do you use it or how do you extend it? Um, so I thought that, that that was really great. And, and I would recommend that um, everybody get it and read it because I think it's very valuable. And, and just to let you know, you know, if you don't want to log that that manual around, there there the the there are little mini manuals that you can get on Kindle. So if you're interested in just learning, uh, you want a collection of exercises on matching, which includes SBI, which includes TPSM and the like, spend three bucks, and you know, and you have it. So there, it it it's available. Uh, for folks who are interested in looking how to e- expand um, and uh, use uh, to the point where we hope that it's used in across activities and across circumstances so that children learn to become language users. This is still pretty rudimentary, but it, it really starts to, to lay down the groundwork for how to think about related things. I was just about to say that at least gets people thinking about more. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's all we want. Just mm-hmm. consider that it's just not what, like you said, F14. One and done. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Um, well, it was such a pleasure talking with you. It really feels like we have more the shared passion for, you know, programming that's outside the box, that's really teaches the kids, that gets them learning, that's creating better BCBAs. So I'm so glad we were able to have this conversation with you thank you so much for being here no thank you guys i really really i never i didn't expect to, to enjoy it so much i never expected to enjoy myself i love it <laughs> glad you're pleasantly surprised <laughs> thank, thank you. you thank you i hope our paths cross again absolutely all the best thanks for joining today's conversation wherever you get your podcast please go and subscribe rate and review so others can find out about us too For more from How To ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com and make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.